1: But we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. There's an urban legend in Russia, but there's this letter, written by Peter the Great himself, that is passed down from one Russian leader to the next, all the way from Peter through Catherine, through all the Soviet leaders, and eventually landing on Vladimir Putin's desk in 1999. A letter that every leader should read upon day one of taking rule of Russia. And according to the story, rather than there being any advice on how to rule the country, or bring the Russian people together, or any sort of call to piety written within this letter, is just one simple instruction. But any leader of Russia should look to seize warm water ports and build up Russia's strength as a naval power, or Russia will perish as a nation. That the key to Russia's place as a global power lies within the strength of its navy. Now, as much as I get the feeling that this letter is just an urban legend, it is pretty hard to deny that chasing warm water ports and open access to the world's sea lanes, as well as building up the country's naval capacity, has been a big part of Russian foreign policy for centuries now. And admittedly, from the perspective of the Russian navy, it does actually make some sense. As even today, with Russia having more landmass than any other country on Earth, their access points to the global shipping lanes are actually pretty abysmal, with geography suppressing every one of Russia's six fleets. In contrast to a nation like the United States, who has permanent access to the two most important oceans in the world, for any leader sitting within Moscow, they have to live with the reality that the Northern Fleet or Arctic Fleet gets iced in for major parts of the year, the Baltic Fleet gets penned in by the narrow straits in Denmark, The Caspian fleet is effectively landlocked, and the Black Sea fleet is stuck on the other side of the Dardanelles. Even the Tartus fleet, based in Syria, which arguably has better access to the shipping lanes, because of those Dardanelles, lacks access to the critical infrastructure it actually needs. In fact, the only fleet with half-decent access to the global shipping lanes is the Pacific fleet, 10,000 kilometers away from Moscow, and even then they're forced to run a tight gap past Japan and China in order to reach the open ocean. And with the Russian Navy already facing this uphill battle against geography, and a long period of recovery from its low point in the early 90s, the Russian Navy was seemingly finally starting to turn the corner, and was starting to gain back some real capabilities, rather than just having the submarine branch be the only thing worth writing home about. Coming into the 2020s, Russia was putting more and more ships into the water, and building up the capabilities within the surface fleets. Things were looking up for the Russian Navy, and then 2022 happened. And the quick operation to conquer Ukraine became a stone for the Russian military to break its back upon. And after the army's failure to quickly take Kyiv, the consequences of their failure quickly became a problem for the navy as well, with the Ukrainian defenders turning their attention to the underfunded Black Sea Fleet, with Russian repair and naval facilities all throughout Crimea no longer a safe place for the Russian navy. And even going back to the earlier periods of the war, we've seen Russian ships and even Russian submarine being hit by missiles coming in from Ukraine. However, for the Navy, this conversation is bigger than just the Black Sea, as while yes, the Black Sea fleet is definitely the one that suffered the most direct losses compared to the other five of Russia's fleets, it's probably not going to end up as the one most impacted by the war in Ukraine, as the Chief of the Russian Navy is probably acutely aware that all of these tanks, planes, and guns that have been lost in the campaign for Ukraine are going to have to be replaced at some point, and the Chief of the Navy probably also knows where the money for doing so is likely to come from for the chief of the russian navy there would be great concerns that the army's loss today will be the navy's loss tomorrow which raises the question what does the future look like for the russian navy if military budgets do drop either through a stagnant russian economy or the increasing costs of keeping some of russia's legacy ships in the water or even funds just being siphoned away to replace these staggering losses of men and material from within the ground and air forces how will the russian navy change and adapt these new circumstances? As the branch least mauled by the fighting in Ukraine, are they set to become more or less important in the eyes of the Kremlin? And if pushed into a financial corner, what emergency options would Moscow be open to? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to try and answer here today. And to take us through the capabilities of each of these six fleets, as well as their current strategic mandates, we turn to our first guest. Part 1
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Navy traditionally, in Russian terms, but also in Soviet terms, has tended to be a bit of a Cinderella service, particularly compared to the ground forces. But That's dissipated after the end of the Cold War. Putin has clearly seen the Navy, in some respects, as part of it being able to consider itself a, a, a world power. So, in terms of the modernization programs, the naval slice of the budget has increased uh, during the Putin years at various points in order to drive a modernization program. The question, in, in many ways, will be whatever the outcomes as far as Ukraine war is concerned, will the Russian Navy take on a more significant role in sustaining Russia's great power credentials, or will the Navy have to do, take a backseat for the regeneration and rebuilding of the land force?
1: Nick Childs is the Senior Fellow for Naval Forces and Maritime Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Nick is responsible for the Institute's analysis of for naval forces and maritime security and for the data on sea power capabilities published in the industry standard, The Military Balance and with Nick's speciality being in European naval capabilities. We're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: The Russian government official documentation talks about Moscow's aspiration to maintain its position as the second naval power. And one area where it could perhaps still claim some degree of second rank is in the submarine arena, and particularly in terms of nuclear-powered submarines and and nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. That's always been the crown jewels as far as Russian naval capability and Soviet naval capability before that is concerned. So that's really the only area where it can claim that. In other respects, it has drifted significantly down the league table, uh, and certainly significantly behind the Chinese, for example, in terms of overall naval capability. And you could argue it's it's drifted down in some respects, even compared to, say, the Japanese maritime self-defense forces.
1: So I want to open up our chat here by running through the strategic purposes of each of Russia's six fleets, as each of these fleets has a completely unique set of goals, commands, ships, and assets available to them. And to start, let's take a look at Russia's smallest fleet, the Tartus fleet, also known as the Mediterranean fleet. And even though it's often discussed as a fleet, it's small enough that the correct term for it would actually be something closer to a permanent task force than a fleet. But to make it easier for everyone here today, we'll call it a fleet. This is the one based out of the small Russian base in the northwest of Syria. Now, at this base, there's only a handful of very small frigates and corvettes much of which still has to travel all the way back to Sevastopol or Kaliningrad for repair and refit anyway. So can you take us through what some of the strategic thinking is here?
3: In recent times, it hasn't had an added element of being specifically to support Russia's military intervention in Syria, uh, and frankly, also to complicate the calculations of of other powers who have an interest in and around the region just by its presence, providing open access in terms of the seas themselves. So the Black Sea Fleet, the Baltic Fleet, for example, ha- have choke points they have to get through. And the Mediterranean fleet has, has been that sort of advanced flotilla, if you like, to overcome those problems should things get difficult in the Black Sea, as, as the Russians have found with the cutting off of the Dardanelles, the Turkish Straits. But it has also shown the challenges Russia has in being able to maintain that uh, Mediterranean flotilla when you can't, if you need to, take the ships back into the Black Sea for significant repairs at, at the main bases in the Black Sea.
1: So if we move up and take a look at Russia's fifth place fleet, we would arrive at the Caspian fleet, although probably better described as the Caspian flotilla, with this fleet being based in the city of Kaspis on the west coast of the Caspian Sea in Dagestan. Now, Russia shares the Caspian Sea with Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Azerbaijan, none of which would probably describe themselves as a global naval heavyweight. So even Russia's small fleet of corvettes and frigates here in the Caspian really does give them a pretty dominant position over this theater, which, whilst sounding impressive, has raised questions and concerns from Russian strategists as to why this amount of money has been spent on the Caspian fleet over the years. And the reason why might actually sit with something it has in common with the twist fleet, being the fact that this fleet does possess a pretty reasonable array of medium to long-range missile capabilities. And previously, we have been seeing ships from the Caspian Fleet semi-regularly firing missiles from the Caspian Sea to hit targets in Syria nearly 1,500 kilometres away. Moving forward to now, with the war in Ukraine, we have seen a continuation of that policy, with ships from both the Caspian Fleet and the Tartus Fleet firing missiles at targets in Ukraine and the Black Sea. And now, whilst I like seeing engineering at work, I'm pretty sure there will be quite a few people sitting in Russia's military accounting department that will point out that firing these missiles from over a thousand kilometres away in the Caspian and the Med is far more expensive than firing a similarly sized missile from within Russia itself. So what is the point of keeping these long-range missile capabilities sitting within the Tartus and Caspian fleets, rather than just relying on the far cheaper land-based missiles? It's a
3: kind of symbolic demonstration of capability as far as the unfolding of the Ukraine conflict is concerned, and particularly the problems that the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been struggling with. One of the relatively new missions that the Russian Navy has been taking on in recent times has been that of being able to have influence on land and project power onto land through the use of precision land attack missiles from various axes that complicates the defenders ability to respond and counter. That is, if you like, one of the key positive elements for the Russian Navy in terms of its role both in Syria and also in
1: the Ukraine conflict. Well, let's talk about the fleet closest to the Ukraine conflict for a moment the Black Sea Fleet, based in Sevastopol, Crimea. Now, from all accounts, the fleet itself is a bit of a mixed bag, with quite a lot of corvettes, a handful of frigates, and notably a handful of good submarines as well. However, most of the assessments written on the Black Sea Fleet these days come with massive caveats, noting that anything written about the fleet prior to 2022 is practically irrelevant today, as the fleet has taken a massive beating during the war with Ukraine, via everything from land-based missiles to USVs with even the fleet's former flagship, the Moskva, being forced to undergo a rapid and unplanned transfer to the Russian submarine fleet. But to some analysts, a lot of this wasn't unexpected, as the fleet went into the war with Ukraine already somewhat a step behind, with the Black Sea fleet not receiving a single ship between the years of 1991 and 2014, even though that most of Russia's interventions between this period, barring the Tajik Civil War, have all been based around the Black Sea but having transferred some newer ships to the Black Sea Fleet in the period leading up to the war with Ukraine, Moscow was probably under the assumption that it would be at very least able to blockade Ukraine and prevent anything getting in and out, possibly even facilitating amphibious landings on parts of the Ukrainian coast. But seeing as both those outcomes have been somewhat unsuccessful for the Russians, what do you think the current status is for the Black Sea Fleet? How does Moscow view it these days?
3: The Black Sea Fleet was, for a long time, one of the backwater fleets of the Russian or Soviet Navy. Interestingly, it's received significantly greater investment and focus in recent years, particularly under Mr. Putin, and that's partly because of two things, one of which has been because of this desire to project out into the wider world oceans. And the Black Sea Fleet is a jumping off point for that more significantly in recent times. The Black Sea region has itself become both more important and of more focused interest to Moscow. So the role of the Black Sea Fleet as both an assertion of of Russian dominance in the region to some extent by itself, but particularly in theory at least, as part of a sort of multi-domain sea and land naval dominance, naval denial capability in the Black Sea. It's taken on a greater role. That's why you saw some of the investments that you have seen into the Black Sea fleet. Some modern surface vessels Perhaps most significantly, the arrival of a significant number of modern conventional submarines in recent years. Now, while that was the theory, it hasn't quite worked out that way in terms of how things have unfolded in the Black Sea in the um, face of Ukraine's kind of innovative challenges which the Russian Navy has struggled to
1: adapt to and encounter itself. And these challenges are very much manifesting at the moment, with the Russian Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol having come under attack multiple times from Ukrainian missile strikes. So in response, the Russians are making two big moves at the moment to try and address the problem. One is to temporarily relocate part of its staff and auxiliary services out of Sevastopol and back towards Russia in Novorossiysk, the port city southeast of Crimea, nearly 400 kilometers away from the Ukrainian frontline, in the hopes that this will make it harder to target Russian assets. And The second move the Russian Black Sea Fleet is making at the moment is to build up a massive new naval facility in Ochamchire, further south down the Black Sea coast. Now There are some claiming that this move is to bring jobs and infrastructure to the area, which is the same excuse Russia used when they decided to move the Caspian fleet's headquarters from Astrakhan down to Kaspis, away from the entrance to the Volga River and down toward the problematic oblast of Dagestan. But others are positing a different reason for Russia moving a lot of its facilities into Ochamchire, as Ochamchire isn't actually in Russia, it's in Abkhazia, a Russia-reliant breakaway state within the UN-recognized borders of Georgia. And because of the fact that Georgia still recognizes it as part of its territory, it would mean that if Ukraine was to carry out strikes on the facilities at Ochamchire in the eyes of Tbilisi, they would be striking sovereign Georgian territory, vastly complicating the geopolitical calculations for Ukraine here. So what do you think has prompted these moves from Russia? Is this an acknowledgement that Russia can no longer guarantee the safety of its Crimean based assets? Or is this just a way of relieving supply pressures on the roads heading into Crimea and a building of relations with the Abkhazians?
3: Well, there are two elements to that. One of which is it is to some extent a problem. Neither of those options at the moment, Novorossiysk or Abkhazia, can replicate the more substantial support, maintenance, refit capabilities that we see in Sevastopol. And while it does add an element of distance and separation and therefore increased potential protection, it does also mean that it is a reflection of the fact that it's more difficult for the Black Sea fleet to dominate particularly the Western Black Sea now because of the risks Of operating there. One could argue that to some extent, the challenges that the Black Sea Fleet is facing, including in terms of protecting its ships while in port, is a general reminder to navies around the world who have perhaps overlooked some basic protection problems like dealing with port protection and base protection. And if you are defaulting to Novorossiysk and Abkhazia, it feels like a bit of an admission of, of shortcomings. But it is also a reflection of the fact that our warships are, in many ways, potentially more vulnerable when
1: they're alongside or in dock. Well, another fleet that has had its situation greatly complicated by the war in Ukraine is the Baltic Fleet, headquartered in Kaliningrad and secondarily in Kronstadt, just outside St. Petersburg. Now, whilst this fleet during the Cold War and even before the war was seen as previously problematic with Kaliningrad being a nest of anti-ship ordnance, thereby making any resupply of the Baltics from Poland over sea in the event of a war with Russia somewhat problematic. Today, with Finland's and soon Sweden's entry into NATO, the ability to supply the Baltics in the event of a war becomes much easier, as convoys now no longer need to run the gamut past Kaliningrad and can now just come directly over the Baltic Sea from Sweden or Finland, negating much of the assets and use of Russia's current assets sitting in Kaliningrad. So do you think this change in circumstances will lower the importance of the Baltic fleet going forward?
3: With the accession of Finland and the looming accession of Sweden, there is a very significant change in the balance of naval capability around the Baltic Sea. Having said that, the Baltic Sea Fleet is a shadow of what it was before. It is relatively weaker even than the Black Sea Fleet now. It has some particular characteristics of capability that need to be paid attention to. But the challenge is that it can present a nuisance value and it can potentially, in in a conflict situation, present challenges for NATO in terms of supporting, resupplying and, and generally asserting control in the Baltic Sea should there be a significant conflict. The ability to potentially harass and cause problems for some of the islands in the baltic is i think suggests it would be more valuable to keep that as a set of problems to pose nato in the baltic than necessarily to wheel them out into other fleets i should caveat that of course by saying that both the baltic fleet and the northern fleet were used to supplement Black Sea Fleet amphibious capabilities in the run-up to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. A number of vessels were moved in to the Black Sea from the Baltic and the Northern Fleet without particular effect in terms of traditional amphibious capabilities, but nevertheless, that is what happened.
1: Well, now let's move to Russia's second place fleet, the Pacific Fleet, headquartered in Vorkina, just southeast of Vladivostok, in Russia's far, far east. And whilst, yes, it does have warm water all year round, it's also a 9,500 kilometer drive from the Kremlin. Now, the fleet does operate quite a large assortment of submarines, corvettes, destroyers, and even the Slava-class cruiser Varyag. So it is one of the more capable fleets within the Russian forces. With some of these ships operating out of Vladivostok, which is about 150 kilometers northeast of the borders with North Korea and China, and about 650 kilometers west of Japan's west coast. But what a lot of people miss with the Pacific Fleet is that most of the important parts of the fleets these days operate out of Petropavlovsk, on the east coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula, that sticky-outy peninsula at the very east of Russia. And whilst it means that these forces aren't geographically boxed in like most of Russia's other naval bases, they're also 2,000 kilometers away from the next decently-sized city in Yakutsk, and there are also no good roads connecting Petropavlovsk to the rest of the country making resupplying and bringing in consumer goods for the people living there always a bit of a pain. But again, this is the fleet that Russia is pouring in the majority of its new ships and equipment, with the Pacific Fleet becoming more and more important within Russian defence planning. Now, it is still in second place, but how long has it been sitting in second place? And how important do you think it will be going forward?
3: It has been for a long time in second place, but a long way behind. And in recent years, there have been moves to improve the Pacific Fleet's capabilities in a number of ways, one of which is simply a consciousness of the traditional role of that fleet as a protection for Russia's Far Eastern territories, and therefore a desire to focus again a bit more on that. Now there again are a couple of reasons for that, one of which is perhaps growing concern and the need to sort of manage a relationship with China that has always been seen as a marriage of convenience in terms of their strategic relationship, but also an acknowledgement that China is, is has been growing as a power, an acknowledgement like many other powers that are also focusing more on the Indo-Pacific region. In the context of everything that's evolved since the, this latest conflict, I think the Pacific Fleet will also take on a greater role again, not only in providing a sort of insurance policy for Russia in its Pacific territories as it sees itself as a specific power but also to show that it still has great power status in terms of being able to carry out some pretty high profile um, exercises, maneuvers, including with China to kind of uh, cement a narrative and a perspective that it is also a valuable partner for China, but also for other potential
1: revisionist powers. Which brings us to our final fleet, the crown jewel of the Russian Navy, the Russian Northern Fleet, headquartered in Severomorsk up in the high Arctic so high up in the Arctic, in fact, that it's just 100 kilometers away from the border with Norway and just 180 kilometers from the border with Finland, with the base in Severomorsk being home to the majority of Russia's best nuclear submarines, its best battle cruisers, some of its best destroyers, and the fleet's one and only aircraft carrier. Now, the Northern Fleet is often viewed as a massive step up from any other fleet within the Russian Navy, but why is that?
3: The Northern Fleet has traditionally been the hub of naval resistance, certainly in the the Cold War, to any NATO naval dominance, and a challenge to what was then seen as the maritime arena, which was the Euro-Atlantic, that continues to, to a significant degree to be the case. It is also the case, if you like, that as events have evolved under Putin, the sort of high north that arena has become of even greater strategic value to Russia itself, and to a degree it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy as a significant set of strategic and particularly nuclear strategic capabilities, including perhaps the most survivable ones, the strategic submarine fleet, that has become, to a significant degree, the raison d'etre for the northern fleet. And given the travails, particularly of the land forces, and you know uncertainties of what a post conflict russia will be able to portray itself as as a great power that those those assets not least the strategic submarine forces perhaps will take on even more significance into the future for moscow and therefore will have greater strategic value the other thing that may also change and many people are reflecting on this and anticipating This is with the expectation that climate change, the melting of the Northern ice cap, the high North and the Arctic will open up the maritime arena and therefore a Northern fleet in conjunction with the Pacific fleet will probably also grow. So all those things together, I think, are a reinforcement of the fact that the Northern fleet is likely to remain the predominant fleet
1: Now, the Northern Fleet is seen as the crown jewels mostly because of its allotment of nuclear submarines, particularly the Bori and Yasin-class submarines. With these being seen as far more capable and important than the rest of the Northern Fleet's surface ships, do you think that dynamic and trend is something we'll see going forward as well?
3: One of the problems for the Russian Navy, particularly in terms of projecting power nowadays is that the new generation of, of surface vessels really haven't come along in sufficient numbers to fill the gaps left by the legacy forces as they begin to atrophy more and more over time. Part of that problem has been that the Russian naval shipbuilding infrastructure capability has really struggled and, and hasn't. Being able to keep pace with modern developments, uh, it's very inefficient, it's very fragile, it relies on key areas where it needs to import key capabilities, particularly things like propulsion systems. So in output terms, it's way down on, for example, the United States or China. It's sort of reinforced the the thought that the surface fleet probably isn't quite as capable as the impression given, but it remains a bit of an open question on what lessons to draw in terms of the effectiveness of of the fleet overall. I think what will probably be the case is that the, the Russian Navy will have its position reinforced in terms of... Being the custodian of real strategic capability, at least in the medium term going forward, in terms of whether that will see a reinforcement of resources going into the Navy or whether it will, over the longer term, be starved of those resources, I think is difficult to tell. Part of the issue is simply that a very significant part of the Russian naval capability That, if you like, is pretty much unaffected in operational terms by the Ukrainian conflict, means that its relative value to Moscow, as its credentials for remaining a great power, will be reinforced and will become of even greater importance to Russia, both in the need to defend it, but also in its ability to impose issues and problems for NATO countries going forward.
1: So Now that we understand that Russia has six unique fleets, with some of them far more important than others, how do the vessels that fill up those fleets compare to one another? That's a question that could have been answered very easily just a few years ago, but now nearly two years on from Russia's February offensive into Ukraine, even the navy is starting to feel the bite, with many in its upper leadership already expressing concerns over what the navy might look like once the dust has settled. If the war were to end tomorrow, would Russia look to continue down the path of undersea competitiveness, or would they finally bow out of that race in an attempt to free up the funds to rebuild their now shattered ground forces? Well, to help us answer that question, we turn to our second guest. Part
2: 2 The
0: Buckling Branch. The Black Sea Fleet has taken some, frankly, unexpected hits and is now increasingly confined to a defensive role. So if we want to think forward up to a time after the war, if Russia wants to throw its weight around, the Navy is probably going to be the key instrument it uses to that end.
1: Mark Galliotti is a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and the Principal Director of Mayak Intelligence. However, what Mark is probably best known for is for his work as a prolific author, with some of his most recent books, including Putin's Wars and The Weaponization of Everything, not only becoming mainstays within the Russia analysis community, but also making our top reads list two years in a row. So we're thrilled to have Mark on the program today.
0: If the Kremlin decides that it wants to reassert its position as a a real serious military power, it will almost certainly have to actually focus on two fleets, the Northern Fleet, which is after all the one that protects its nuclear submarines and will project power in the North Atlantic, but also the Pacific fleet. Because again, if it wants to show that it can play with the big boys, you know, it needs to have a few assets in the Pacific just simply to maintain some kind of pretense towards relevance.
1: So obviously you've been covering this area for a very long time. So I want to get your perspective on this one. How would you characterise the spending of production that was taking place at the very end of the Cold War as compared to what we were seeing in the Russian military right before the 2022 invasion?
0: The Navy, in some ways, it is always going to be sort of limited by the fact that naval procurement takes just so damn long. You can, in theory, bring a a new weapon system or even a a reorganization of, of military structures around it in a matter of a few years. On the other hand, naval platforms have a tendency to take a long time to basically bring from first idea to actually it being floated out and and in combat-ready order on the water. So in some ways, what the Navy experienced was more shrinkage than modernization. What that did is it, it moved an opportunity to get rid of some of the old Soviet legacy ships and deployed. New ships that were deployed were essentially small ones with quite a punch, particularly built around the caliber missile system, which we've seen deployed, after all, not just in Syria, but also then in in Ukraine. So we still got a very sort of familiar pattern in which the Navy was very definitely the, the poor relative of the other arms of service. But we did get some degree of modernization. And not least, just simply biting the bullet and getting rid of some of the older, rusting and frankly, hardly seaworthy old ships did at least free up money that otherwise was being wasted on perennial and pointless maintenance."
1: So one of the aspects I think that's not well understood by a lot of people is how the inner decision making of the Russian military actually takes place. With the chiefs of the various branches, as well as a handful of civilian officials making decisions via a Chief of the Armed Forces and the National Security Council with the President often having the final say of what gets funded and what doesn't. So right now, the current Commander-in-Chief of the Russian Navy is Admiral Nikolai Yevmanov, a former submarine officer from the Russian Pacific Fleet. So now that he's been in the job for about four and a half years, I want to ask how much influence he actually has on the decision-making processes around the overall direction of the Navy. Does he have the ability to nudge the Security Council, or is it the Security Council dictating to him?
0: I think the honest answer is he will have influence, but only when there is more money available. The thing is, to a large extent, the Navy's budget is fixed by its needs to maintain what it's got. And therefore, at the moment, there's no scope for him to really assert. He, he can try and fight his corner on behalf of the Navy and to try and get the Navy's budget increased. But you know, that's a very, very hard sell when the ground forces are being chewed away in Ukraine. If and when, and I think it's more likely to be if than when, there is more money, then that's when the Navy will have a role, because then they'll be the ones who pitch their ideas, pitch their vision of a future of the Navy. But as I say, at the moment, I think, frankly, managing stagnation is the best that he and the rest of the the key naval commanders can hope for.
1: Now, there was already budget problems within the armed forces of Russia well before 2022, but the war in Ukraine has really sped up some of these problems over the last few years, particularly for the Navy. One of the problems being, as you pointed out, that most of the Navy's projects are very long-term ones, and so need to be budgeted and planned for as such. Now, prior to 2022, the Navy was undergoing a series of modernizations and upgrades on its submarines and surface ships, including even looking into possible new classes of these ships, with many of these improvements being done in the hope of being able to sell some of these models on the export market and make back a big chunk of that money even if they're just selling parts and components or export model versions of Russia's more basic forms of surface fleet. But now, after these sanctions on Russia, and many existing Russian customers suffering severe difficulties getting a hold of Russian parts and equipment at the moment, with Russia prioritizing military materials for their own operations, some of these states are now looking to diversify away from Russia within their procurement chains, including the two main export markets for this sort of naval gear, the Chinese and the Indians. And with them going elsewhere, so does that money. So how much do you think this shrinking export market is likely to hurt the Russian Navy in the long term?
0: Look, they have two key problems. One of them is precisely the degree to which they actually depended on foreign components. And ironically enough, that often meant, particularly when it came to engine turbines, Ukrainian components. But secondly, exactly, who really wants to run the risk of buying Russian in an age of sanctions? The striking thing is that the Chinese are building their own ships these days. And the Indians, who represented the other key market, frankly, are definitely trying to step away from the dependence on Russian kit. So, again, although actually Russian ships and Russian naval weapon systems have proven themselves to be not at all bad, despite some few very high-profile failures particularly in terms of not noticing Ukrainian missiles coming their way. But actually, those are largely because of deployment and crew skills and the like. The ships, the frames are pretty good. But the point is, if you buy a Russian ship, you're not just simply buying a one-off. You are actually locking yourself into a long-term relationship because of the need for upgrades and spare parts and maintenance and so forth. At present, for countries Other than, say, Iran or North Korea, that may well be a political
1: and economic gamble. Internally for Russia, particularly for defence production, can also be a bit of a pain for the Russian defence contractors, with Russian companies like the tank producer Ravogonsavad or the jet manufacturer Sukhoi having had members of staff complain on numerous occasions about being paid late or not enough by the Russian government. And if those guys have a Russian government with less money to spend, as well as a greatly reduced export market, Surely that hampers some of the main sources for foreign capital coming in for these companies, which in turn is probably likely to impact the amount of R&D they're able to do down the road. So these sanctions and the shrinking export market, do you think it's going to have long-term impacts on some of these Russian defence contractors?
0: There's no question about that. Today's Russia is a strange hybrid between a capitalist state and a centrally planned economy. If you are within the defense sector, you have to, for want of a better word, pretend to act like any other commercial company anywhere in the world. But in practice, you are also in some ways a local annex of the Russian Ministry of Defense Production. So in that respect, yes, there are serious debts and they represent a continual irritant and also most importantly for the Navy, they also represent a real deterrent to proper R&D work. We have seen definitely a decline in investment in looking forward to the next generation of ships beyond the submarine realm.
1: So if everyone is aware of these budget shortfalls, why would Putin be greenlighting projects like the various doomsday weapons we keep hearing about things like Poseidon or the nuclear tipped hypersonic missiles? Why not spend that money on something like improving sailor pay or better ship maintenance or improving damage control systems? Why go for these really expensive doomsday programs there are so many other bread and butter issues that should probably be funded first i mean there's
0: a whole variety of reasons but if i'm going to be glib i would say it's because russia has become a monarchy i mean it is really quite striking how a president who has let's be honest no meaningful military experience i mean he did a little bit of reserve officer training when he was at university the absolute minimum you had to As soon as he left university, he used the fact that he was employed by the KGB to actually get out of his reserve commitments. So Putin is a man who doesn't really understand the military in any serious way. He wants to see new tanks, but on the other hand, the the necessary supply and maintenance structures, they're not sexy, they're not exciting, he's not interested. There is nothing sexy about just simply saying that we have to maintain our fairly rusty ships, that we actually have to ensure that we can hire Not just enough crew, but crew with the kind of technical specialisms that are needed. That's not exciting. But to basically say, we have a weapon that could blow up New York, that is exciting and that catches his eye. And this, unfortunately, is the nature of the modern Russian planning system. That 95% of the time, it's being done in an essentially rational way by military technocrats. But on the other hand, whenever the monarch wants to reach in and say, buy that thing, that thing gets bought. So if we look at naval systems, he wants to use these kind of overblown doomsday type missiles that are very dramatic. So when he announces them and we have video montages of how they would work and everything else, they certainly get the West's attention. And from Putin's point of view, he's decided that the Navy's main role is essentially to be a political instrument.
1: Now, the other person who would be, according to the of process anyway, making a lot of these decisions around defense spending and funding would be Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. But obviously with Putin still making final calls and all of this stuff, the relationship between these two will likely have a big impact on what gets funded and what doesn't. So how would you characterize the relationship between Putin and Shoigu at the moment?
0: Shoigu may well be more out of favor than he would like, though I think we shouldn't overplay that. Shoigu is a very, very canny political operator who actually has a personal relationship with Putin. And Putin, whatever else, tends to be kind of loyal to his own. More to the point, we have to understand that although technically you know, Russia is not at war, it's merely a special military operation. But in practice, Russia is on a full wartime footing. And what happens during time of war is in many ways that the respective positions of the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff reverse. In peacetime, the Minister of Defence is clearly the dominant one. In time of war, in practice, the Chief of the General Staff is the one who actually shapes the military operations, And it's the Minister of Defence's role to support the Chief of the General Staff, who in turn gets his directions directly from the Commander-in-Chief, i.e. Putin. So in many ways, actually, Shoigu's role is now to carry Gerasimov's bag and generally do what needs to be done.
1: And with the war going on, how much is Gerasimov actually looking into naval administration and future programs at the moment? Is he thinking beyond the war, or is he mostly just trying to solve the problem that's happening right now?
0: Gerasimov himself, I think he's rather busy. It was a deeply foolish idea, one that was, again, driven by political issues rather than anything else, to make Gerasimov, who has a full-time job already as chief of the general staff, also the overall commander of forces in Ukraine. So this is a man who does not really have the time for long-term strategizing, especially not for any other branch than his own. And he obviously is is a, a tank forces commander. So I think in those circumstances, who is shaping policy?
1: It's actually the Security Council Secretariat. That person being Nikolai Patroshev, an old Leningrad KGB buddy of Putin who's known Putin since the 1970s and even replaced him as the head of the FSB when Putin left. And what can he do in this role?
0: The Security Council is the body that brings together the the key figures within the the Russian security state. So it's obviously, it's the Chief of General Staff, it's the head of the Interior Ministry, it's the head of the Intelligence Services. And it's also various civilian ministers whose roles are to support security operations. The Security Council itself is not a decision-making body. But the bureaucracy that supports it is actually crucial in basically acting as the gatekeeper for who gets to brief Putin, whose papers get to reach Putin's desk and whose don't. How are those papers written? How are they framed? How are they re-edited? And what it is clear is that within the military personnel who have been seconded to this, the Secretariat, the Navy is largely underrepresented. They're quite strong now within military intelligence, GU, because the overall head of military intelligence is is an admiral. But actually within the Secretariat, again, it's actually more Air Force officers and regular army. And so, again, once the Navy's priorities are being filtered through people who basically are not Navy officers and don't really want the Navy to
1: prosper at the expense of the other arms of service. So if Gerasimov is too busy trying to wear these two hats, why is Putin keeping him in the role?
0: It came down to the fact that the the previous overall commander, General Sorovikin, who is now very much in the doghouse because of his relationship with the mercenary commander, Yevgeny Prigozhin, he was in effect, and this is going back to the winter of last year, he was essentially advocating a largely defensive strategy, particularly over the winter. He's the one who really pushed for the digging in, the building of the defensive lines, which in practice have actually proven to be really quite important, I'd almost say crucial in allowing the Russians to weather the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But nonetheless, this did not please Putin. Putin likes the idea of an essentially offensive war. And when the existing overall commander refused to actually take his scarcely trained, newly mobilized forces and throw them into the attack, he had to be removed. But on the other hand, Srovikin was also one of the real high flyers of the the Russian officer corps, tipped by many to be the next chief of the general staff. So at the time, they didn't want to humiliate him. So it made sense for someone more senior to replace him. And the only figure more senior is Gerasimov. But also Gerasimov he's in that kind of position that he is one person who cannot at all say no to Putin. I mean, this is basically going to be the war that defines his reputation and the quality, shall I say, of his retirement. So I think Gerasimov was someone who was willing to kind of fight however destructive it was for Russian capabilities, an offensive war. And he also had the rank that he could take over and replace Sorovikin without it being an obvious humiliation for someone who at that time, they still wanted to
1: keep on board. Do you find this kind of politicking prevalent throughout the entire senior ranks of the Russian military, or is it just a few isolated cases?
0: I think on the whole, actually, it is able officers who who rise to the top. And again, look, we shouldn't be naive about the fact that to get to a really senior position in a Western military, you have to have a certain degree of of political instincts. You have to be able to get along with your political masters as well. And I think what we tended to find in the past, in other words, before the war, was that heads of respective armed services tended to rise because they were competent, but also because in some ways they had a kind of broad following within their respective officer corps. Whereas the chief of the general staff was very much the right-hand man of the defence minister. And typically what happens is each defence minister gets to sort of pick their own chief of the general staff. So really, it depends kind of what they want. Shoigu's predecessor, Yukov, his chief of the general staff, Makarov, was very much a reformer, the man behind the, the new look reforms, and was someone who was a genuine thinker who actually did have a vision of the future. When Shoigu came in, he inherited an officer corps which was very much in disarray, very unhappy with many of the changes that Serdukov and Makarov had brought in. And so what he needed was essentially someone who could be both the enforcer of the ministry when necessary, but also was someone who actually could act as the shop steward for the officer corps, who could represent their views and make them feel that their views were being recognized. And that was Gerasimov. The problem turns out to be that although Gerasimov was actually a pretty effective chief of the general staff in peacetime, when he was really just a, a uniformed administrator-in-chief, he's proving to be a truly, truly disastrous wartime chief of the general staff. But the point is that in some ways Shoigu and Gerasimov come as a team. Putin is very notoriously reluctant to, to reshuffle his security leadership at the best of times, let alone in the middle of a war. So to a degree, Russia is currently stuck with a chief of the general staff who clearly is not fit for the role and a defense minister who I suspect would very much like to give up the job but can't get rid of it at the moment.
1: Well, let's pivot back to the Navy for now and look at some of the decisions that are currently being pushed by Yevmanov, the Commander-in-Chief of the Naval Forces. Do you think because of the situation they're in at the moment that we might see a big reshuffling of naval assets anytime soon, either to replace the losses in the Black Sea fleet or to pull assets from fleets that are probably less important these days like the Baltic Sea? What do you see on the cards coming up for the Navy?
0: If one looks at his speeches and so forth, he seems to be fairly content with division of labor between the fleets. Because after all, each fleet has its own very kind of specific role and a a position in the pecking order and a composition to reflect that. He is essentially, I think it's fair to say, a technical admiral in that he understands that side of things really quite strikingly. I mean, he would still want to see the, the northern and pacific fleets prioritized. But I think what that means would change. The thing is that really, frankly, ever since the 1970s and the now legendary Admiral Gorshkov, who was really the the father of the idea of a true ocean-going Soviet fleet, since then there has not been a head of the navy who has had three key things. One, a vision of the future. Two, the confidence of the political leadership. And three, most crucially, the budgets to match. So if he had those, I think we would see an attempt to finally break the Russian Navy away from essentially being shaped by its dependence upon Soviet legacy ships and Soviet legacy ideas. The point is that I don't actually see any chance that he will be given that kind of freedom and above all those kind of budgets.
1: But if those budgets do drop and they have these same amount of ships with less money to play with, something is going to have to be cut meaning that a decision is going to need to be made to either maintain these submarines at their current level at a high cost to the surface fleet, or let the submarine programs begin to slip as you can keep going with some of the programs that were underway in 2022 for the surface fleet. If the budget's do drop, which way do you think Russia is more likely to pivot?
0: really precisely because of the fact that that is the one area in which actually the Russian Navy can argue its case to the political leadership and say, this is why we matter. There are the naval infantry, there are some landing ships, but no one really thinks that the Russian military is in a position to be able to rival the US Marine Corps or similar. However, in terms of its submarine fleet, the fact that it is really the naval missiles represent a crucial element of Russia's nuclear deterrent. And as a result its status to be able to claim still to be one of the great global powers worthy of a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council, etc., etc., Once you've accepted that, you need also to have the hunter-killer submarines to defend your naval boomers as well. So that is also an area that gets ring-fenced funding. And once you've invested in that and you're continuing to spend on the necessary R&D, it became something of, of a virtuous circle, precisely because of the political need to have some aspect of Russia's nuclear forces, which were still considered
1: to be truly secure, The last time the Russian military budget really suffered was during the collapse of the USSR, and you can really plainly see it when you start looking at the surface fleet production numbers and levels, as what we can see in the numbers is a pretty substantial ramp up of surface fleet production in the 1980s before the collapse comes in in the beginning of the 1990s, and pretty much all production of Russian surface fleet vessels grinds to a bit of a halt, with production really not even starting to pick up again until the beginning of the 2010s, and not hitting its stride until the end of the 2010s going into the beginning of the 2020s. So even though it's likely not to get anywhere near the levels of the drop we saw at the beginning of the 1990s do you think we're likely to see another stagnation in russian naval production capacity going forward
0: what i think we are going to see is a dramatic shift in tonnage so we may well be seeing more holes but on the other hand they are going to be smaller you know, even before the war frankly the russians while maintaining a few large prestige ships for flagships and for flag visits and the like. But otherwise, we're essentially looking to smaller frigate or less sized vessels, which could be platforms for drones and missiles. I think the days when the Russians could talk about having a full-deck aircraft carrier, let alone, you know, battle cruisers and the like, I really think we're not going to see them for a long, long time, if ever.
1: So the Russian Navy has a pretty tough road ahead of it at the moment, with the work the Navy has to carry out, frankly, only likely to get tougher as well, whether it be to compete with China and the United States in the Pacific, or maintain Russia's nuclear deterrence in the North, or even somehow regain dominance over the Black Sea. But do the Russian ships actually have the technical capabilities to carry out operations like this? The Russian Navy is often touted as being a very impressive one, but how is it currently stacking up against its competitors? And how are these looming problems likely to change that balance of power? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest.
2: Part
0: 3. A Rusting Remnant.
4: It's clear that Russia does emphasize its submarine force. It's the elite within the Navy. It's where the majority of the funding and the most powerful, the most cutting-edge technology investments are made, often at the expense in overall terms to the rest of the Navy. While other programs are often delayed, for example, they're still building very large submarines, the largest submarines in the world in operational service anywhere in the world. And in comparison, the surface Navy is making do with comparatively small uh, warships and the largest ones that have been refitted often taking a back seat. So There's no doubt that it is the most invested in and expensive and central part of the naval force.
1: H.I. Sutton is an independent defense analyst specializing in naval technology and underwater warfare. He's one of the most widely regarded naval analysts, both by journalists, analysts, and national governments, particularly when it comes to naval developments in Russia, China, and the US, with much of his detailed and analytical work put out on his website and YouTube channel under the name Covert Shores. I've been a huge fan of his work for a long time now, so we're thrilled to have him back on the program today.
4: Russia's nuclear submarines are in the same tier as the U.S. Navy and Royal Navy nuclear powered submarines, particularly the attack submarines, and cruise missile submarines. So in the Russian Navy, that would be the Yasin class. That is, broadly speaking, as stealthy and as dangerous as the best submarines in the U.S. Navy or the Royal Navy in general terms certainly in the same tier, and a higher tier than any other country. In comparison, their surface warships, although they have some interesting features, are not in the same league when compared to the best warships outside of Russia. Russia does, of course, have certain interesting weapon systems, hypersonic cruise missiles. The Zircon is being rolled out, but it doesn't make their surface vessels better
1: so can you take us through the basics on some of these submarines so how does let's say the latest board class submarine compare to something like its predecessor the delta 4 class
4: the bore is a significant advance over the the delta 4 for example in the stealth technologies the delta 4s and in fact that generation of russian submarine was already very stealthy i think the one to point to really is of course the yasin class that is the star submarine in technology terms in russian service The West has got the advantage in technology and the latest and and future Virginia class and the Astute class in the Royal Navy are incorporating new technologies that are still beyond the Russian ones, but not to the extent that they are a step ahead in overall terms. Wars are not fought purely on the detail of of different technologies, It's how well they can be implemented and how much bigger of a difference they actually make in the overall terms. So the Russian ones are not necessarily stepping forward as fast as the Western ones and maybe in the future the gap will get bigger again, but where they are now, they're very, very
1: capable. Well another area of particular interest for Russia at the moment is UUVs and seabed warfare. Now, I know we spoke at length about this a few months ago. We had you on for our piece purely focused on UUVs and seabed warfare. But for now, can you give us just a quick summary of what Russia is trying to achieve here with seabed warfare programs and how they stack up to its competitors?
4: Seabed warfare is an interesting space because Russia is more invested in it traditionally than the West. It has got the dedicated fleet of submarines for it. They're controlled by an organization called GUGI, which is essentially the main directorate of undersea research, deep water research. In reality, it's a spy organization, essentially. However, that was largely invested in before the latest dependency the West has, or many countries have, on undersea infrastructure both for communication like internet cables and things like this, but also power cables and, and pipelines, of course. And what we're seeing is that when it comes to hybrid warfare, many more parts of the Russian Navy and possibly intelligence organizations are exploring different ways to operate in that environment, which don't only come down to its traditional submarine advantage. I think we will see a lot more diverse ways of operating in seabed warfare and broadly speaking Russia taking the role of the aggressor or the threat and NATO is taking the role of the defender
1: so we hear all about these impressive capabilities within the Russian submarine program so why is it that the Russian aircraft carrier program then has been such a disaster for the Navy with Russia's one remaining carrier the Admiral Kuznetsov as the ship which was launched in 1991 has caught fire in 2009 off the coast of Turkey broke down in a storm off the coast of France in 2012, with it then needing to be towed all the way back to Russia, lost two very expensive planes during its only ever combat deployment to Syria in 2016. In 2018, its dry dock, a PB-50, sank into the ocean around it, with a 70 ton crane punching a hole into the carrier, with the only dry dock big enough to service the carrier and repair that hole now sitting at the bottom of the sea. They had another fire in 2019, and then it caught fire again in 2022 only being able to finally pull away from the dock in February 2023, before requiring another major overhaul this year. Now, put all these problems aside, even as a carrier, it really isn't much to brag about either, as it has a very low fuel capacity, only being able to operate for 45 days at a time. And the engines burn low-grade oil, so there's a whole slew of problems that come from that one as well. So why would they keep this bad luck charm of a Frankenstein on life support as long as they have? Why wouldn't they have cut their losses on this one years ago? In
4: general, and this can go for their battle cruisers as well, the aircraft carriers are as much about pride as they are about real capabilities. Having only one aircraft carrier is questionable. It's not available a lot of the time, and they had trouble training the crews. They also suffer from accidents. This is going back a a few years, but when they deployed it to Syria, they had to move the aircraft from the aircraft carrier to land-based. They didn't need the aircraft carrier for that. They could have just flown them without the aircraft carrier at all. So I think it is a program which is so resource intensive and so difficult to maintain that it's a bit beyond their logistics and beyond their energy, really, to do much with. But they're stuck and committed to it because of pride.
1: So most of the bigger ships we're talking about here are all part of the northern fleet. And pouring through the data, we can see that in recent years, most of the newer and better equipped ships seem to be disproportionately heading toward the Pacific fleet. So why do you think the Pacific fleet is getting such a boost at the moment?
4: It's very interesting because traditionally the Northern fleet is the more powerful fleet and it's the one facing the North Atlantic. It's definitely true that a lot of the most new and um, capable submarines, both for the nuclear deterrent role and also the attack submarines to protect them, are going to Pacific. It does ensure that the Pacific fleet isn't neglected, doesn't become a sort of a third... Tier fleet and possibly it is to counter japan and force america to keep a significant watch in the pacific but this is just speculation what i say though is some of the reports of things going to the pacific fleet don't necessarily bear true and if they are true they raise questions an important consideration is submarine Belgorod, which is the largest submarine in service in the world and it's unique it carries a poseidon weapon it's the first operational submarine to carry poseidon it's reported to be going to the pacific which if true really shows the growing importance of the pacific fleet to the northern fleet but the question mark certainly in my mind is that the infrastructure support poseidon and to support the other role of belgrade which is deep water submarines and and so on that's in the northern fleet not in the pacific fleet so some of the reporting doesn't seem to ring true
1: so the russian navy was looking to recoup some of its financial losses through being able to sell parts and export variants of some of these ships on the international market particularly to the chinese and indians but now with sanctions and production difficulties that have been exacerbated by the war a lot of that seems like it might not be going ahead anymore adding another problem to the russian shipbuilding industry but if this export market continues to dry up what impact do you think that's going to have on the russian navy going forward
4: There's definitely some question marks around their future ability to continue building and maintaining the submarine force that they're committed to. The financial situation right now, they're struggling and they have been for years, although they have been commissioning lots of very impressive submarines, somewhat at the expense of other parts of the Navy. And that will become ever harder as they have to put more money into the war in Ukraine and maintaining other parts of their military, which are probably more important to them, certainly in the short term, the ground forces, tanks, armoured vehicles, all those sorts of basic things, not to mention paying people and mobilising forces and and so on, is going to become harder, which raises a lot of concern. They have surface vessels looking ever more out of date and they don't have any really big orders on the books as a future source of income. Yeah, they're going to struggle. Things are not looking good
1: All of this raises a pretty serious concern, as there is a fairly plausible scenario where if the Navy finds itself strapped for cash and no one is looking to purchase their ships from them, the only thing they really have left to sell is, well, their technology. That Russia could look to sell its quiet submarine technology to states that aren't necessarily friendly to the United States. Is that something to be concerned about at the moment?
4: There's a pretty serious concern that they'll sell nuclear submarine technology to China, and that could be a bit of a wild card. If you go back 20 years, there was no doubt that Russia was far in advance of China in submarine technology, both nuclear and and non-nuclear submarines. That's changed. China is probably ahead in certain areas. In general terms, in non-nuclear submarines, China now has more modern, advanced ones than Russia, particularly in air-independent power. But also in certain stealth technologies and probably battery technologies and more consequential is probably ahead on uncrewed underwater vehicles, and particularly armed large uncrewed underwater vehicles. However, nuclear submarines, Russia is still ahead. So the one thing that Russia can sell to China would be nuclear submarine technology. And they have sold some of that technology particularly quietly in the past. But it's about the only thing that China would look to Russia to get improvements from. And it's probably the thing that concerns the West most, the idea that Chinese submarines themselves could get another boost. But I think Russia could only do it once. <laughs> once it's sold the latest technology, China is probably going to be moving forward faster than Russia is. So China will then be in the advance. Similarly there's a little bit of concern North Korea probably much less advanced but North Korea is supplying missiles and other armament to Russia. Money's one thing if Russia's short on money what else can they sell technology, defense technology. So possibly some submarine related technology. But again I don't think we'll see nuclear submarines in North Korean service for quite some time.
1: Surely for Russia that also helps the European theater as well as if the Chinese, Iranian or North Korean submarines do become a far greater threat to the U.S. than what they are today, for the U.S. it will likely mean diverting and stretching resources away from other theatres like the European theatre and towards those ones to counter that. Is that one of the concerns at the moment?
4: By proliferating these technologies to countries, North Korea, that's a very obvious one, maybe Iran, you know, maybe India, maybe Algeria, they're looking to stretch and distract other navies. So that might be a motivation to them and it could be some pretty basic technologies there is already some russian technology in their missile systems it could be more done on a larger scale. And again it's exactly the same with china a motivation to help china with its nuclear submarines or or a way of arguing it's not as bad as it might traditionally have been. Because if we sell it to, then the US Navy is going to get ever more distracted by the Pacific and not put as much effort into the North Atlantic, for example, or into Ukraine. So, yeah, I think there's absolutely part of the, the rationale why they might do that.
1: If the Russians do choose not to go down that road, though, and just live with their budget cuts, what projects do you think would be placed on the chopping block first?
4: There's been some very bold projects that they've had, for example a replacement aircraft carrier so a new super carrier for example new large destroyers or cruisers in in general sense the sort of thing that's broadly equivalent to the largest frigates and destroyers in in other countries the Aegis sort of system that they're equivalent those have stayed models shown at defense shows there's no real sign of them building any of that i think if, if they haven't been formally cancelled, which I, I expect they have, they certainly are not going anywhere. Same, same sort of situation for large amphibious ships. It's generally speaking the largest ships that they've built in recent decades are frigates in, you know, as combatants. It's clear that the service fleet is not getting the investment that it would want or expect. And as an overall force is only getting less and less capable compared
1: to other navies around the world. I mean, if we're looking at fleets that have very obviously lost some of the capabilities, the Black Sea Fleet is obviously the one that comes first to mind. As right now, we are looking at a Black Sea Fleet that has taken a pretty bad beating over the last few years. So I want to get your thoughts on what you think the future of that fleet might be. If, let's say hypothetically, the war with Ukraine were to end tomorrow or simply just return to the kind of cold stalemate we had prior to 2022, how do you think the Russians would look to address the problems that currently exist within the Black Sea Fleet? Do you think they would look to divert all their future production into rebuilding that fleet or even just move assets from other fleets to replace those losses? Or do you think that Russia is more likely to just accept that they probably won't ever be as competitive in the Black Sea again?
4: There's two sides to that because there's some truth that they could reconstitute. And in fact, they've been gaining ships, in particular ships with calibre capabilities. So they've lost some some pretty important logistics ships. That's a major a deal and they obviously have lost the the cruiser, the Slava-class cruiser, Moscow. However, they've been gaining some ships able to carry calibre and they can reconstitute those via their inland waterways from the Baltic and Arctic and Caspian and they still have quite a reserve of ships in the Caspian. And in fact, some of their ships in the Caspian can launch cruise missiles from the Caspian and hit targets in Ukraine. So there is that side to it, however, there's also no doubt that the navy they've got in the Black Sea is not as dominant, or not really dominant at all, versus what you should expect. And there's a question as to whether reconstituting it with some of these warships actually makes that much difference. So it, it's an interesting problem because they still have an on-paper advantage over Ukraine and over anything Ukraine is likely to gain after peace deal. Even if Ukraine was able to start shifting warships in, it's got a couple of frigates under construction or corvettes under construction. In Turkey, which would be delivered, it's got a couple of minesweepers. It'd be nothing in comparison to what Russia has available and can bring in. But the Russian Navy has to rethink how it's going to dominate Ukraine or anyone else in the Black Sea. The, The force it's got is, on the whole, too old and too vulnerable to be that survivable and that useful. Maybe they would look to emulate Ukraine in use of uncrewed platforms, but that's a whole new Navy for them. And I think that would be much harder for them because it would be giving up on a lot of kit. Even if they reconstitute the Navy in the Black Sea, they're not going to be any more
1: dominant than they are today. Is there any feasible paths forward for the Russian Navy to recover some of their damage they've taken over this last little while, or work around some of these budgetary problems they're heading into? let's say I was to make you the chief of the Russian Navy tomorrow, what would be some of the first things you would try to do to improve the current situation within the Russian Navy?
4: I wouldn't want to give them too many ideas. One of the takeaways was complacency. And the Russian Navy and Russian forces in general have been reactionary and have been on the whole unimaginative and slow to adopt new technologies. They're almost as if they're not sure what their role should be. There are certain important roles that they are doing. They were launching a lot of caliber cruise missiles. They're also doing logistics runs, which are very important. And that's why Ukraine has been targeting them. But Ukraine has got a freedom of movement that they shouldn't have. And if we were in... Russia's shoes, we'd be looking very much at our training programs of ships on damage control, on basic proficiency at taking out small boats and things like this, things that have been the focus of Western navies prior to the war. If the Russians were trained to the level of a typical NATO or Western aligned Navy, then they wouldn't have half the problems they did have. So yeah, it's back to basics.
1: So let's look ahead to the future for a bit. What do you see within the future production for the Russian Navy? Do you expect that we'll see a lull in production like we did previously in the period between the early 90s and the beginning of the 2010s? Or do we assume that we'll still have production hitting the water, but it may not have the capabilities of some of the prior projections for the Russian Navy? What sort of vessel do you see going into production over the next little while?
4: My expectation is things will slow down again. So particularly the Poseidon carriers and things like this I'd see are uh, really uh, very much at risk. And if they cancel or slow those down, that also a lot of sunk costs that's going to go with that. However, I I think they're still going to try to launch ships. And of course, we should be careful. They have a habit of launching ships and using it for propaganda internally as much as externally. There's a difference between launching ships and translating that into operational capabilities. And we might see a mismatch. We might see a lot of ships getting commissioned, but not necessarily getting up to the same operational service as the previous ships that were in a similar situation 10
1: years prior. So effectively what we've seen from the T-14 program.
4: Yes, absolutely. T-14 of submarines is something you could expect, yeah.
1: Well, it is slightly comforting, I guess. Now, to bring this to a bit of a close, I wanna ask, what do you think the big headline will be for the Russian Navy over the next few years? What is the big story you're currently on the lookout for?
4: One thing to watch out for is that as they launch new submarines with Poseidon capability, that's the nuclear-armed torpedo, that's a doomsday weapon and it will probably get a lot of attention, both within Russia and outside Russia, and will shape a lot of media attention and a lot of analysts' attention. At the same time, I think programs such as their replacement of the older nuclear-powered submarines, which, although quite capable today, are getting long in the tooth, are getting quite old, the ones that are not the Asin class, for example, the Oscars and the coolers, that could get shelved or put off. So I think they'll be hidden. You know, there's a lot of bad news for Russian Navy from their perspective, but the headline will be how new submarines with super weapons are coming into service. If anything, I think we'll see a greater emphasis on these super weapons.
1: Now, I'm in no way a cheerleader for Gerasimov, but I also do not envy some of the choices laying before him. He can probably see the staggering expenses and losses that are stacking up from this campaign in Ukraine, and he probably knows that moving to the defense or even trying to reach some sort of stalemate like it was before 2022, would at least cauterize the wound and help lower the stupefying amount of per day spending Moscow is currently going through. But after watching what happened to Surovikin when he moved to the defensive, it seems unlikely that he'll be able to go down that road. As it is, the figures released by the Kremlin this week now show that Moscow is willing to spend 35% of its government spending towards the military, that being roughly 8% of its entire GDP, once you include national security into the equation. And this is all whilst inflation in Russia is currently spiralling and there are internal problems growing within the country, a path and set of circumstances that Gerasimov would remember quite well, having watched his predecessors stumble down this exact same road with Moscow's intervention into Afghanistan in the 1980s. And much like that campaign, that too started as something that was supposed to be quick and easy for the Russian military, but ended up inflicting massive bills and a whole bunch of mauled equipment upon their armed forces. And whilst it was the army that felt the immediate brunt in Afghanistan, the navy felt the impact for years afterwards, with again more of the armed forces funds being siphoned away to rebuild parts of the ground forces lost in the campaign. So for the Russian navy today, it is somewhat easy to understand while well, they might be a bit apprehensive about the future that lies before them. As Yevmenov, the chief of the Russian Navy, will be well aware that he's being tasked with maintaining Russia's position in the top tier of submarine capabilities, maintaining a good chunk of their nuclear deterrence, whilst also maintaining their capabilities across multiple fleets, and being competitive in the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Mediterranean, and now increasingly the Pacific as well, whilst all at the same time, having to make this all work with the added hindrance of a shrinking export market and funding being diverted away from the Navy to replace losses in other branches, with the cherry on top of that also being the fact that the country is now being led by a leader who sees more value in dubious doomsday weapons that are little more than budgetary black holes than he does in basic naval maintenance. For the Russian Navy, there is a justified worry that the Army's losses today are the Navy's losses tomorrow, and for them… There's a good chance that it might be time to batten down the hatches and prepare for the incoming storm. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week, and what a way to start off 2024, a year that I'm sure will be even bigger than 2023 was, with even more content coming up, live panels, Patreon events, and even an upcoming mini-series, and our new sister channel on YouTube, Context Matters. For all of you who joined us in 2023, we cannot thank you enough. And for 2024, we intend on giving you even better content. So we hope you stick with us. Now, if you wanna be made aware of when we put that content out, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Threads, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me, I'm on Twitter at the handle at Mike Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And speaking of our amazing patrons, this week I'd like to thank Cameron, Rick Roth, Daniel Axtman, and Kale Rombaut, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of the time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, and we cannot thank them enough. But if you feel you can spare a couple of dollars, and you want special access to Q&As, transcripts, and videos like our recent workshop unpacking the Taiwan invasion plans as well as our crash course on the better Armed Forces, you can sign up to our Patreon today, links for which will be in the description. And as I said, we would absolutely greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on Russia's six fleets is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Putin's Wars by this week's guest, Mark Galliotti, for a fantastic look at the developments within the Russian military over the last 30 plus years. The second is Russian Strategy, for a good look at Russian naval strategy in the modern era. And the third, which was also Redline's Book of the Year for 2023, is Keir Giles' Russia's War on Everybody, for a great look at the current dynamic unfolding within Russia. I want to thank this week's guests, Nick Childs, Mark Galliotti, and H.I. Sutton. I cannot thank you all enough for jumping on this one and really starting the year off with a big one. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, starting with the primary researchers for this piece, them being Nate Ostiller, Jemima Bentreith, Ben Nutter, Gabriel Lane, and Sean Cotillem. And in addition to those guys, I'd like to thank the rest of my staff, being Cameron Gale, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zivella, Genevieve May; Nate Stiller; Nick McNally, Sean Lem; Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Lorenz Van Kielbilk, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanno, our media director, Raoul Devanarayanan, our Ocean analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Kashyap Maheshwari from our online team, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Cramptree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Mutch, a field correspondent. I cannot think of a better team to be taking into 2024, and I'm looking forward to another big year ahead. Which makes me very happy to say for the first time in 2024, the red line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and The Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.